Today we're starting with good reason out in the country. Right now we are at Mount Rush Farm uh, in the geographic center of Virginia in Buckingham County. Buckingham County is a small community home to cattle ranches and timber farms. Many of the residents have deep roots there. This is my mother's house. It's where I grew up and um, where my father grew up and my grandfather grew up. This is Irene Leach. For Irene, every inch of this farm tells a story. Even walking past an old shed brings up memories. My dad built this when I was a teenager, and this is where we fed the Angus steers that we showed for 4-H. You know, they'd weigh a thousand pounds by the time we showed them. But now, Irene is worried about her family home. The pipeline is going to come out here kind of straight through there and then it's going to come to where those cattle are and make a right-hand turn continue through the middle of this field and go through the middle of that field and then around and that's through the field where we uh, bring the cattle dominion energy an american power company headquartered in richmond wants to build a natural gas pipeline through Buckingham County. And before we get any further into the story, I should disclose that Virginia Humanities, our parent organization, has received funding from Dominion. But back to Irene. The pipeline would cut through her property. Dominion's offered her a sum of money and acquired the proper permits from state and local authorities. But Irene sees the line as a threat not just to her fields or to the 150 cattle her family is raising, but also to her identity. Our society has gotten so most people move pretty often, and they buy and sell and trade, and this has been a part of my family since the 1800s. And I was not raised with the you move and you whatever, you can go off, but you still, you take care of this. This is heritage. This is a part of who I am. The company in charge of installing the line had assured Irene her land is safe, that she won't even notice the pipe after it's been sunk deep in the ground. But she's one of many people in Buckingham County and around the country concerned about what the new natural gas infrastructure means for them. Today on With Good Reason, we seek answers from experts. First, we investigate the science. Andres Clarens is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Virginia, where he's director of the Virginia Environmentally Sustainable Technologies Laboratory. Andres, what actually is natural gas? How do we mine it? So when we drill a well, we can produce a liquid, which is crude oil that most people are familiar with, or we can produce a gas, and that gas is primarily methane. How do you capture methane before you get it into a pipeline? So when it comes out of the ground, it's usually higher pressure than it is at the surface, and so it flows out. Although uh, a lot of the easy-to-find natural gas has been produced, and so increasingly what we're seeing is that the places we're going for natural gas are actually really pretty hard to get out of the ground, and so that's where fracking comes in. How much natural gas do we think we have 
to pilot a lot of uh, gas stoves and heat homes? Uh, the estimates vary quite a bit. With the advent of fracking, we can probably get many decades of natural gas supply. Now with fracking, we're able to produce it in parts of the U.S., like in Pennsylvania and Ohio and West Virginia. And so they're having to build new pipelines to get that natural gas out of these regions that weren't traditionally big producers of natural gas. Why does natural gas need to be transmitted through pipelines? Couldn't we put it on trucks and haul it that way? So the cheapest way to move it is in pipelines because it's a gas. It can be compressed. So the pipelines operate at very high pressures. And at those pressures, it becomes a liquid. So it's much more efficient to move it as a liquid than as a gas. You can move more of it more effectively. And so that's why we build pipelines. Do they ever break? Yeah. They can corrode over time, rust, and these are metal pipelines. There's water in the ground, and so these things can rust and develop leaks. Um, another place where you run into problems are at the pumping stations. So I mentioned that this is high pressure, but as it flows through these pipelines, it loses some of that pressure because of friction with the walls. And so every 40 to 100 miles, it has to be recompressed, which is just pumps that basically take that natural gas, pressurize it again, and send it back into the pipeline. A lot of people have been concerned about new compression stations. In addition to the pipeline that's going through properties, tell me more about the compression stations. Is there a cause for caution. Yeah. So compression stations have a lot of moving parts in them. And so they tend to be very leaky. And so a great anecdote about them is that even though we don't know, most people don't know where natural gas pipelines are because of natural security reasons. You don't want to sort of advertise where these things are located. If you look at them from above, you can find out where they are because all of these compression stations are leaking methane 24-7. So if you had a drone or an airplane or something with a methane sensor on it, you could basically tease out where these pipelines are because of the leaking natural gas stations. Even if the natural gas compression station has a very small footprint on the ground, you could still find them. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at footage, aerial footage of methane maps? Yeah, I have. I have. So if you look at um, maps of where methane is being emitted in the country, you see these lines in the landscape, then those are the natural gas pipelines. It's really sort of, um, it catches your eye. And where it's leaking is not the five feet down at the mm -mm. junctures of the pipes. It's at each of these compression stations. That's right. Do you consider it much leak? Um, I would say that newer stations are probably better than older stations. That's generally true. But these stations that are being built today are going to get old at some point, and they're going to start leaking. And methane is a huge problem from a greenhouse gas perspective because it's much more potent than carbon dioxide, which is what everybody worries about in the context of global warming. But I thought gas as an energy source is cleaner than oil, coal, and wood. That's a great question. Um, so... If you just take the actual process of burning that fuel and say which one is cleanest, then that's true. Natural gas is cleanest because there's not a lot to it. Coal's got all kinds of other stuff in it. And so if you burn that, you're going to produce acid rain. You're going to produce particulate matters that give people asthma. You're going to produce mercury. None of those issues come up with natural gas, it's true. But if you think about the entire life cycle of the fuel, so natural gas you have to take out of the ground. There's going to be leaks. You have to put in a pipeline. There's going to be leaks. You have to store it. 
if you add in that whole life cycle of the process, natural gas, it's not like you put it someplace and it stays. It's a gas. So it's gonna, some of it's going to leak out, and that's a problem. Uh, it's, a, it's a very contentious topic right now. In fact, um, the current administration is trying to roll back some methane rules uh, that the previous presidential administration put in place uh, to try and curtail some of these methane leaks. Because one thing about methane that's worth pointing out is that it's colorless and odorless, so you would never know it was leaking. You surveyed people with your colleagues at Mm -hmm. James Madison University looking for what attitudes are about pipelines, compression stations. What generally did you find or not find? So I think that there was a general mismatch between what people's concerns were and what my colleagues that sort of think about these systems on a daily basis would say are the biggest problems with the pipeline, uh, where most people that are going to be directly affected by the pipeline would identify things like explosions, leaks that would affect water quality, tearing down forests, eminent domain issues where they're taking over their backyards. These sort of issues were really dominant. For those of us that think about energy and energy systems, the issues that I would have identified as sort of the top issues are that this is a very expensive project that is going to lock us into a future where we're going to have to burn a lot of natural gas. This is Dominion making an investment with their ratepayers' money uh, that is going to need to be paid out over multiple decades. It's an economic issue. Uh, when we see clear trends in the energy market that are pointing in a different direction. What direction? Renewables? Yeah. Uh, so solar over the past 18 months to two years in Virginia has gone absolutely crazy. And the prices are very, very low. I did the calculation before coming over here, but the pipeline is now expected to cost about $6 million. If you took that money and invested it in solar projects in Virginia, about uh, one out of every three houses in Virginia would get its power from 100% renewable solar energy. Let's say somebody who knows about this was pushing back against you. What's the best argument against that? The main argument that people make against deep deployment of solar, so 30, 40, 50% of our electricity coming from solar, is what's called the duck curve. And so what that is, is that we have a lot of solar generation during the middle of the day and not very much at night. And so if you look at a traditional sort of demand curve for electricity, solar's great for half of the day, but it's not great in the other parts of the day. And so what that means is that we need to develop storage technologies or we need to develop other ways of generating electricity in those times of day where the sun is not shining. And where are we heading in terms of storage capacity? Grid-scale batteries are not available today. It's definitely where the industry is trying to go, and there are a lot of people working very hard on this, um, trying to develop battery banks that would be enormous. I mean, warehouse scale that would store electricity made by solar power plants. And could that be horrible? It would use a lot of materials. So it would use rare earth metals that may have to be imported. They're definitely, most things we do have an environmental impact, but there are people working on making sort of more environmentally conscious battery formulations. Why did you say that in the last two years there's been a real ramp up of 
creation of solar energy just in Virginia. What are you seeing? The ramp up has occurred because large institutions uh, have demanded it. So institutions like Google and Microsoft. So Virginia has a lot of server stations here where the internet gets routed through this state just because of the federal government and the military being here. So these are very power hungry server stations where there are lots of computers is the way you can think of them. And these companies have said, listen, we want to expand our operations in your state, but we will only do it if we can buy 100% renewable from you. Is that because they want cheaper power or they're committed to the greater good? It's a commitment to the greater good at this point, but the costs are basically on par. They're getting the electricity that they're buying from solar producers to be uh, the same or very close to what they would be buying from natural gas or coal. So we're at a point, I think, where it is the big mover, the big corporations, institutions, they have the heft so that Dominion will actually listen to them. Those are the ones that are moving first, but the price is now such that it makes sense even for consumers. So that's why you see a lot of people putting rooftop solar installations on their homes. Are those rooftop arrays on homes becoming cheaper? Oh, unbelievably so. Prices have dropped 70, 80 percent in the past five years. Really? Yeah. What is the attitude towards solar in coal country where people have depended on coal for their livelihoods? I think there's been a real shift where people are seeing these larger trends in terms of the boom uh, in solar production, seeing the number of jobs that can't be outsourced someplace else because the jobs are really not about manufacturing of the solar panels. The jobs are in uh, installing them on people's houses, maintaining these units, building all the other parts besides the panels. There are many, many jobs in the solar installation industry right now, and that industry is growing at a very high rate. And so lawmakers in Southwest Virginia are beginning to come around and see opportunities for their constituents. But you don't see the pipeline stopping. You see this as, let's go with solar, let's keep on with pipelines. Yeah. Um, Well, I think the way I think about the pipeline is, you know, you don't build a a really expensive house and then not live in it. You know, it's a big investment that you're going to have to recover the costs of. And so I think that the pipeline could really financially come back to haunt us 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, when all of the ratepayers are saying, we want renewables, the renewables are there, let's do them. And Dominion saying, well, we got to pay off this pipeline that we made a major investment in. Andres Clarens is an environmental engineer at the University of Virginia. He specializes in carbon management. Along with Ryder Foley and other scholars, he co-authored the report, Future Energy Infrastructures, Engagements with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Coming up next, what railroads can teach us about pipelines. Today, debates about natural gas pipelines are happening all over the country. But in the 19th century, the debates were focused on railroads built to move coal. Jamie Allison is an historian at Christopher Newport University, and he studies how the railroad system was built. He says it's not hard to see parallels between railroad construction and pipeline construction. There are some common themes that we often see, and that is... First of which, these, these projects are often initially met with great enthusiasm. 
What often happens, though, is that enthusiasm wanes because infrastructure creates winners and losers. And the reason it creates winners and losers is because, well, you know, not everyone stands to benefit equally from pipelines or railroads for that matter. And here we get into maybe the differences. With railroads or with canals before them, they serve multiple purposes. They're not just conduits for energy. And they also move in multiple directions. So goods go one way, goods come back. Many more people stand to benefit from them. As energy infrastructure projects get more narrow in purpose, more unidirectional, that is commodities flow away and not much is coming back, such as the case with pipelines, then it's quite clear that there are winners and losers. The people who decide who the winners and losers are, the process of deciding where infrastructure goes, is not equally open to all. If the creation of railroads was the best parallel we have to the running of gas pipelines today, were there people who protested access of their lands for putting the railroads across? Yes, certainly. There's a couple of distinctions between how the railroads in the southern West Virginia were built and how these pipelines are being built. For one, the railroad constructors didn't have to rely on eminent domain as much as we see the pipeline constructors having to do so today. And that partially has to do with the kind of incomplete nature of private property in southern West Virginia in the 1870s and 1880s. The railroad builders hired an army of lawyers and land agents to come into these counties in southern West Virginia and to exploit problems and deeds, either overlapping deeds, there not being a deed for the property, and then would basically work with you know southern West Virginia courts to create deeds that benefited them. And they didn't have to rely so much on the power of eminent domain. How do you do that, though? How do you say your deed and land are ill-gotten? Well, you work with the government that's there. To the extent that these railroad companies had to rely on the powers of the West Virginia state government to either use eminent demand or just record their own deeds that they were drawing up, there were a lot of backslapping and handshakes. You know, I mean, this the state of West Virginia writ large would have an interest in the economic development of its coal fields in the South. And so the railroad companies that can make that happen would have had a very close relationship with people that adjudicate these land rights. So the way we see people banding together now to protest pipelines going through counties and vast swaths of territory, did we see people banding together to protest back when the railroad was running lines? Yes, but the reasons for the protests were slightly different. If we think about the protests against the pipelines today, these are largely based on environmental grounds, based on grounds of violating private property, the perhaps unconstitutional use of eminent domain to take property from you to give it to Dominion Energy Company to build a pipeline. Back in the 1870s and 1880s, there was large-scale protests across the country against railroads because this form of infrastructure was creating winners and losers. And the winners were the companies that built the railroads, not the producers of agricultural or other commodities that would go along those lines. And so there was a fear that the producing class had lost control over the conduits of commerce and were suffering from exorbitant railroad rates to get their items to market. And so, you know, again, in the 1870s and 1880s, I mean, you've got popular uprisings like the populist movement, an agrarian movement that believed that the middlemen, railroad operators, were squeezing farmers 
to get their products to market with very little benefit going back to the producers. Do you think the political attitude has changed more recently when the power companies who want to invest in big power plants or pipelines are making the case this is good for the consumer because we'll be able to keep our other costs low? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's the argument that's being put forth by the energy companies, but it's a pretty tough one, I think. It's a pretty attenuated set of um, steps to connect to have that argument hold key if you think about it within the context of eminent domain. So the power of eminent domain is granted to the government. I mean, you know, it's in the Constitution. The Fifth Amendment of the Constitution gives the government at various levels the right to take private property for public use. There's a long history of how courts have interpreted public use, and they've been doing it pretty liberally so that almost anything that brings in more money has been interpreted as good for the public, and thus you can take someone's property to do that. Even if you're taking private property from one individual and giving it to another private entity, the Supreme Court has held that as long as that's for the purpose of economic development, that's for public use and as a rightful use of eminent domain. And so if the courts are willing to accept that for things like urban renewal, then it seems pretty easy to make the jump that, well, of course they should do it for energy infrastructure, right? Because that's just producing more energy for the public that, at a cheaper price, and that's good. Has eminent domain generally affected more people who have less means, the poor and people who can't sort of lawyer up, than it has more wealthy property owners? I think that historically that would be accurate. The great cases of eminent domain in the 20th century largely stem around urban renewal projects in the 1960s. And even more recently, I mean, the most recent famous case from the Supreme Court has to do essentially with an urban renewal project coming out of, um, it's called Kilo versus the city of New London, where again, homeowners land was condemned in order to you know do this big urban renewal project that really was i think by most observers would say really was intended to benefit the Pfizer company uh, who would locate a headquarters there as part of this urban renewal project and the supreme court in a closely held decision said sorry to these homeowners that were not uber wealthy were lower middle class and had had homes there for you know generations but this new private entity can do better with that land. And so that was good enough to meet the requirement of public use. And if we go back to what I was saying before about the decisions about where to put infrastructure creates winners and losers, the reason it does that is because not everyone has equal access to the process in deciding where infrastructure goes. And then certainly you run into problems of injustice, racial or environmental injustice, where people that don't have the same access to the political process or the access to the legal system to fight eminent domain, those may be easier targets for having their land condemned. Some activists have called for more oversight of the corporations building natural gas pipelines. Was there more regulation and oversight by the state during the 20th century? Yes, is the short answer to that. Over the course of the 20th century, we've gone through ebbs and flows of less regulation and more regulation of the energy sector. Starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s, you see this rash of deregulation 
And so for much of the 20th century, uh, an entity like Dominion Energy would have produced the power or produced the electricity. They would have transmitted it where it needed to go. And then they would have sent us all consumers uh, our retail bills each month for how much electricity we use. And there's been a movement to kind of disaggregate those things, to add private, less regulated entities into the market. So now is the pipeline operator, even if its name is Dominion or Dominion and its partners, is it truly a regulated utility or is it just a private corporation trying to outcompete other private corporations that are also pipeline operators? And if it's the latter, then you know, we need to maybe seriously question whether it should have the right of eminent domain. You've also studied the impact of power plants on Native American land in the Northwest. And in your look through these utilities and trains, pipelines and power plants, how often are the utilities and railroads part of the infrastructure of power in the various states? Yeah, so this gets to the coalition of like-minded interests that then grow up around energy infrastructure. Historians of technology and energy historians use a term called path dependency, that once we make these choices as to where to lay the infrastructure, that those things have a very long shelf life and they spur all types of other associated infrastructure that comes with them. So it becomes so hard to change the energy regime put in place by that energy infrastructure because so many interests are entrenched in them. So in our contemporary situation, if we're making this decision about where to build pipelines, laying those pipelines mean that there's going to be an infrastructure in place to deliver really, really cheap gas. And if we think about these in, in the context of climate change, this is also the energy companies are saying this is not only cheap, but this is clean energy because you know natural gas has half the carbon emissions of coal, which is true. But it also has a lot more carbon emissions than renewable energy sources do. But by making those decisions about laying that infrastructure now, today, we're kind of in some ways, I won't say locking it in, because if history tells us anything, it's that things can change. But we are creating a path dependency based on this choice of energy that will be very hard to change path down the road if, say, renewable energy sources become highly competitive. I keep coming back to this idea that infrastructure creates winners and losers. The reason that is, is because infrastructure is not just inanimate objects, that it embodies a set of cultural choices we make about, in this case, what type of energy we want and what kind of society we'll build around it. The problem historically has been is that not everyone's had equal input into making those choices. And that energy historians have told us that supply has always driven demand. It's not that people woke up one day and said, you know what, I'd rather have this dark, bulky, dirty, but hotter source called coal instead of wood. It's that the producers of coal, the extractors, made a concerted effort to convince people that coal was a better alternative. And part of the way they did that was by laying infrastructure that made it cheaper. If we could learn anything from the past and apply it today is that we maybe need to make decisions based on more than just what is the cheapest, most available energy source that's here now. But we have to pay attention to the unintended consequences of laying that infrastructure, that it has a long shelf life and it builds up a whole regime around it that becomes very hard to change down the road. 
So we want to be thinking about the kind of future, the future energy regime we want to create, not the one that perhaps makes the most economic sense today. Jamie Allison is a professor of history at Christopher Newport University. He's the author of Sovereignty for Survival, American Energy Development and Indian Self-Determination. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. Next, environmental regulation expert Sarah Stafford. She's a professor of economics, public policy, and law at William & Mary and explains the trade-offs we make in order to get cheap electricity. Sarah, your expertise is in environmental regulation. What sorts of things would that cover? There's a really wide variety of things that are regulated, but it includes things like air pollution, water pollution, waste spills of any kinds of materials, harm to either human health or to the environment. So it could be something that if a child were to sort of eat some dirt (laughs) that had this chemical or this contaminant in it, that that could make that child sick. It could be something that if you were to breathe it, it could cause irritation, an asthma attack, or something more serious, but also things that might pollute waterways and kill fish, or that if birds ingested them, that they would have troubles or they might die off. So it's all of those things that affect human health and the environment. So pipelines in particular, how many different substances are sent through a vast network of pipelines nationally? So we have gas, oil, anything else? Yes. So there's a large category called hazardous liquids. So these could be just a variety of different types of pipelineable substances, so things that can flow through a pipeline. The pipelines have to be specific to a type of product. So you have gas pipelines, you have oil pipelines, and then you have hazardous liquid pipelines. And they all are looked at slightly differently. So the substances are separated, and if someone wants to have a pipeline, they have to get it permitted for that specific substance. So when it comes to pipelines, is there one agency that regulates them? No. No, there's actually a variety of agencies. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, known as FERC, is the um, agency that's responsible for permitting pipelines. So when someone wants to put a new pipeline in, they have to go through FERC. Once the pipeline's in place, then its ongoing operation is regulated by the Office of Pipeline Safety, which is part of the Department of Transportation. So we've moved from the Department of Energy to the Department of Transportation because the pipelines are basically an alternative to transporting that material via truck or train. And then if there's a spill that contaminates soil or the water, then the Federal Environmental Protection Agency is responsible for making sure that the spill material is cleaned up in a way that's protective of human health and the environment. So we've got the Department of Energy, the Department of Transportation, and the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level. We also have environmental agencies in each state. So if I'm a natural gas company and I want to get natural gas to the Gulf of Mexico and I'm up in the north... I go to FERC. 
and say, I'd like to run a pretty straight line through a bunch of states. Yes. And the reason why it is at the federal level, not at the state level, is that if it were up to each state, the state might prohibit a pipeline from going through. So that's where the federal system is sort of kicking in and saying this is a national priority. And so they're supposed to be looking at it from a national perspective and not allowing one state to impede interstate commerce. Have there been any big spills or ruptures with natural gas pipelines, you know, sort of in the recent history? So with natural gas pipelines, what you hear about primarily are the explosions. And with oil pipelines, usually what you hear about are the spills or ruptures, because when it's oil leaking into a waterway, that's very obvious. Um, And when it's a gas explosion, like we just heard about um, in Massachusetts, it's very obvious as well. There are lots of little spills that happen on a, you know, weekly, monthly basis across the U.S. that no one ever hears about. What sort of spills? A spill usually happens where? Does it happen deep underground at a little connection from one pipe to another? Or is it more the compression station? Where? It can happen anywhere. So if it's underground, it's often not noticed unless it becomes a big enough issue. So there's enough leakage that it starts to contaminate um, the waterways or the soil and someone notices it. So there are systems in place that pipeline operators can use to try and detect leaks. So there's, you know, a lot of requirements about leak detection systems and how often they're used and how pipelines are monitored to try and minimize leaks. The ones that you hear about are often leaks above ground. So you see an above ground pipeline with a leak of oil into a waterway. um, And that becomes sort of the national news. But it's the little leaks that are happening on sort of a weekly basis that no one ever hears about. What's considered safer for transport of natural gas, pipelines, railroad, or trucks? Well, in general, pipelines are thought to be one of the more protective ways of transporting natural gas and oil. And the reason is, is that the pipeline system doesn't require as much human interaction. So if you think about transporting it by truck, you could have a very safe driver of a hazardous tanker, and they could be involved in an accident that's not their fault. So we certainly think about trying to get those types of materials off of the highway system where they would be potentially in contact with large populations. Um, But there have been some pretty spectacular problems and accidents with trains as well. So it's not that trains are particularly protective, and they often also run through large population centers. So the idea behind the pipeline is that, you know, by placing them underground, there's less ability for external forces to cause the accident. It's a sort of more contained system. And so that the pipeline operator themselves has more control over when accidents occur and can minimize those accidents with an appropriate level of care. In looking at this or through the records, have you found areas where you suspect we need to have additional safety measures in place for natural gas pipelines? So the focus of my research has been looking at what happens when states increase the amount of inspections that they conduct 
for pipelines or they increase the amount of fines that they're penalizing pipelines. And what are you finding? The key is that the material that's being transported in those pipelines is very valuable. And so the companies already have pretty strong incentives to minimize leaks. Because if there's a leak, they're losing valuable product that they're not going to be able to sell. There is an increase performance as we increase oversight, but it's not dramatic. Typically, the increase in enforcement doesn't have an effect on those big spills, the catastrophic explosions where there's loss of life. And that's because we really already have all the incentives in place for you know, gas companies and oil companies to not have those things happen. When there are large explosions and significant property damage, those companies are going to be sued and they're going to have to pay out big settlements. Increasing those enforcement actions doesn't change the priorities of the oil and gas companies. They already have the incentives to try and minimize accidents. So there is a role for regulation at both the state and federal level because the value of the product alone is not sufficient to always protect human health and the environment. We could do things that would minimize even further the amount of leaks or the amount of explosions that we have, but they might be so costly that that would mean that people wouldn't use pipelines in the first place, and then we'd go back to trucks and trains, and ultimately that could be worse for human health and the environment, since there are also significant accidents that happen there. The real thing is that we have these materials that if they are released into the environment are going to cause lots of problems. But they're also really critical for lots of things that we take for granted every day. You know, air conditioning our homes, allowing us to cook and wash our clothes. And even when we think about hazardous liquids to produce the plastics and the other products that we're using on a daily basis that really do give us positive value. So it's always this sort of trade-off between the downsides of these materials and the upsides of these materials. And if the people who are going to be negatively affected by any spills that happen are also the same people who are being positively affected by the presence of these materials that are enriching their lives, then you can say that might be a fair trade-off. The math kind of changes when the people who are in harm's way are not the people who are benefiting. Sarah Stafford is a professor of economics, public policy, and law at William & Mary. So who are the people in harm's way? To find out, we drove to the tiny community of Union Hill, a part of rural Buckingham County that's primarily African-American. Some longtime residents think it's no coincidence that a compressor station for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline has been planned for near where they live. Residents of Union Hill and their allies have been protesting now for four years, And once a month, on Sundays, they hold an interfaith gathering at the Union Hill Baptist Church. Activists say these prayer and speaking circles help them find a little joy and relaxation in the midst of a long series of what have been losing battles. Here's a little of what it sounded like. We ask Father God for clean water 
we ask, Father God, for fresh air. We ask, Father God, that Mother Nature might be protected. And we ask, Father God, that you will guide us in our mandated responsibilities through Scripture. And by the commands of God and by your written word, Father God, to take action, to speak out and to speak up and stand up. Oh, great creator, I come before you in a humble manner and offer you this sacred prayer to the four powers of creation, to the grandfather sun, to the grandmother moon, to the mother earth, and to all our ancestors. You are in the fight of your lives here against one of the biggest, baddest actors that there is. And it is a struggle for good versus evil. And might we be used, Father God, and that we might have the mouths to speak up, the hands to work, the feet to walk, the backbone to stand straight for the kingdom's sake, your kingdom. We're together on one accord. In our clear imagination, young and old, every color, every kind, there is dignity and harmony when all are welcome and none are left behind. So we rise when we all stand together. Dominion Energy has told reporters the planned compressor station has not targeted the African-American community. The company says putting the compressor station at Union Hill uses less pipe and therefore has less environmental impact than putting it farther away from the main line. But for scholars who study environmental justice, it's hard not to see the impact of race in the compressor station controversy. That's because historically, infrastructure projects have taken a greater toll on communities of color. To learn more, we spoke with Travis Williams. He teaches environmental sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. Travis, we just spoke to an economist who talks about pipelines and other infrastructure as a series of trade-offs. And she argues there might be people who are negatively affected by new pipelines, for instance, but they also often benefit in other ways, clean energy, cheap electricity, access to better products. What would you say to that? Well, I would, I would say at least in reference to Union Hill, there's very little benefit that those people actually stand. If you listen to the community themselves, they've been very adamant about what their problems are, whether they're worried about their land, they're worried about their air quality, they're worried about generations that come after them. They're worried about honoring the generations that came before, because it's a freedman town. So it's really, um, it's a really special community that's really been developed by African-Americans uh, who were formerly enslaved. And there's a long history of property owning African-Americans that are there, very vulnerable and very um, kind of e easy for powerful interests to forget about. But it's also a community very rich in culture, um, and there's a lot of really interesting, just little cultural artifacts like local newspapers that are delivered, you know, by car to people, black, new, black newspapers. Um, there's a really rich history of land, of relationships, and really just of, of families and, and identity. 
And I think it's important, you know, not just for the people who live there, but Union Hill itself is a really important American story. And there are a lot of things there that cannot be replaced. And the people there, when you talk to them, they're very, you know, they're very animated about about this stuff. And these are not people who are, you know, career activists. I mean, a lot of these are older African-Americans. These are not people that necessarily have, you know, a really invested activist identity or even necessarily identifying as environmentalists, but really people who are really worried, very afraid about what is happening. How close will the compressor station come to their actual homes? Very, very close. In some, in some cases, um, only like 100 feet or so. This compressor station is literally near the center of Union Hill. Many of them are low-income African-Americans, health issues, elderly African-Americans. And this is a really enormous um, industrial project. Compressors, compressor stations are really enormous, complicated very um, powerful um, industrial facilities, and the pollution associated with them is very, very significant. The noise pollution associated with them is very significant, and there's a lot of concern about how this is going to impact this area, which is well known for its clean air, its clean water. So yeah, the African-American community in Union Hill is really on the front lines of this, and it's going right through their, their living space. What do you understand about the potential health hazards of compressor stations? As I understand, a lot of the worry is air pollution. Also, the kind of ongoing 24-7 noise that comes from these compressor stations. They also have uh, what's called blowouts. These are very high-intensity events that are associated with very elevated spikes in pollution. And the fear is that the closer people live to them, the worse off they are in terms of air quality. Yes, very, very much so. That is definitely the fear. And that's really where Union Hill, um, in terms of their organizing around this frame of environmental racism, that is one of the key features of it are, are the fact that they are the most directly impacted community. And this phenomenon that's happening is, is more than just unfortunate or unlucky or something that's bad, but there's a whole history and a whole trend behind racially, also economically, but racially marginalized groups that are disproportionately exposed to industrial hazards and often have these projects hoisted on them. You use the term environmental racism. What is that really? And how long ago was the term coined? So environmental racism, there's really two key dimensions to it. So basically, the two dimensions are one is it draws attention to the lack of minor, racial, racial and ethnic minorities, people of color in the environmental movement. That's one in leadership positions in, this, in the ecology movements, in environmental movements. And it also highlights the disproportionate impact of environmental hazards on communities of color. The origins of environmental racism can really be traced to Warren County, North Carolina. In Warren County in the early 80s, what had happened there was there had basically been a contractor and his two sons who one of the things they were doing was disposing of industrial waste. People would hire them to get rid of hazardous waste. This is happening kind of in the shadows of the 1976 Toxic Substances Regulatory Act 
And basically what happens there is the disposal of hazardous waste becomes very expensive because really prior to uh, really the 70s, waste was treated fairly indiscriminately in terms of like solid waste versus hazardous waste. There wasn't a lot of differentiation. And in the early 80s, one phenomenon that was happening was kind of mass dumping of hazardous chemicals that needed to be gotten rid of because people knew that this new law was about to start to be in, to be enforced, the 1976 Toxic Regulatory Substance Act. And what happened in Warren County was this, this contractor, along with his two sons, had driven all around North Carolina dumping PCB-laced oil on the roadsides. This is discovered, and what happens within the state of North Carolina is that they have to find a place where they're going to dump this contaminated soil. And they look at a variety of sites, and they end up choosing Warrenton, which is a very small, rural, African-American town in North Carolina. From the get-go, there's a lot of opposition to this, and the groups that form are primarily, they include actually African Americans, some Native Americans, and some white rural landowners. The NAACP files a racial discrimination lawsuit alleging racial discrimination in the choosing of the site, and that's when Reverend Benjamin Chavez first coins the term environmental racism. Is there data or other evidence that shows that environmental destruction is more likely to affect communities of color broadly across the country? Oh, yeah. Yes, there's a very large body of scholarship that there were disproportionate impacts on racial minority communities and also economically marginalized communities. So there is a lot of peer-reviewed data. There's a lot of government data. And one thing that happened with um, that landfill, that landfill was built in Warren County, that hazardous waste landfill. And just like the people had warned, it leaked and they ended up having a Superfund site there. And while that particular that particular facility was built, the movement that it ignited is now a global movement. And um, anyone who's really studied environmental justice or environmental racism knows about, about Warren County and how crucial it was. As I was walking the highway, I saw above me Travis Williams is an instructor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. As of today, some landowners in Buckingham County have agreed to compensation and will allow the pipeline to expand through their property. But others aren't backing down. Many will attend yet another round of public comment on November 8th. And in the meantime, they sing. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. 
Special thanks this week to Raymond Lenz at WHRV in Norfolk and Steve Clark at WCVE in Richmond. Some music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.